It's Thursday, February 11th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, the one and only Bill Mann. Good to see you, my friend. How are you? I'm well. I am well, despite the fact that we're going to be talking about a global shortage. I'm not going to say a global shortage of what. We will get to that, and we will get to the latest results from Uber, but we're going to start with housing, specifically Zillow, which is wrapping up its fiscal year with the most profitable quarter in company history, and we'll get to other things, including their guidance, but I think that headline alone is part of why shares of Zillow are up 16% this morning. 16% on the back of what has been a really good year for Zillow stock. Zillow and Redfin, which isn't exactly in the same business, but it's definitely in the same neighborhood. They have had spectacular spectacular years. And I have to go back, and I hate doing this because I hate giving Tom Gardner credit, but Tom Gardner was so early on Zillow as being you know, a business that is that that is well suited to how we are going to be shopping and you know in, in the future. And they are spot on. And you know, they came in with revenues of seven hundred and eighty-nine million dollars. Uh, great geographic dispersion. They've obviously benefited from the in-migration. They've obviously benefited from the fact that people are making have really gotten to the point now where they're moving out of cities or they're, 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 they're moving to places more out of desire rather than economic necessity. Uh, but yeah, in all ways, a really, really great quarter for them. And I think that this is just the beginning for Zillow. Certainly they indicated as much uh, in terms of their guidance because their revenue guidance for 2021 was definitely upbeat. And yeah, it was hot. <laughs> it, it was hot. And, you know, and yeah. so was the housing market. I mean, yeah. Rich Barton, the CEO, was talking about you know, what he referred to as the high velocity market. And just to put one set of numbers around that, this past December, on average, existing homes sold in 17 days. And a year prior, the average was 42 days. Yeah. Even the ugly houses in our area are getting sold. Well, and it's, you know, I think that this is one more economic data point that is grist for the mill for people who are banging the drum of the stock market being overheated. Yeah. And and you know, obviously the housing market is not the stock market and vice versa. And yet I I, I can understand particularly for people who are involved in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean it's you know, yeah. I'm sure you know at least a couple of people. We work with a couple of people who are in the process of trying to buy a home. And yeah. some of the stories I'm hearing are 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 borderline crazy. Yeah, they're a little bit horrifying. And here's the thing about it. We love businesses that co- go in and they change the way commerce is done in an already huge market. And that's the Zillow story. I mean, the housing market itself will remain cyclical, but I have a hard time seeing that the way houses will be sold is going to go backwards rather than forwards. So even if they are still very tightly geared to a market that has cyclicality to it, it doesn't necessarily mean that Zillow's future isn't absolutely spectacular. And one of the things that I think is going to happen is that at some point, we're going to manage to get housing titles onto the blockchain. And so the process of buying and selling a house, which right now, when you think about it, is so barbarian, 
But a company like Zillow, they're going to be able to happen, you know, have a button on their site. Like, would you like to buy this house? Bloop. It's done. Do you have them? I guess maybe next question. Do you have the money? Uh, but right now there are so many elements of the housing market that are so inefficient that are going to be sell- solved by technology. I'm absolutely confident of it. Uber's fourth quarter loss was a little bit smaller than expected. Uh, shares of Uber are basically flat today, but the stock is up more than 50% over the past 12 months. And that's one of the more astonishing performance. I mean, <laughs> you know, if, if we're ranking what's more surprising, you know, a, a cloud stock up a thousand percent over the past year, I, I think I'm tempted to go with shares of Uber up 50% over the past year. Because while well, the it turns out whole- if they lose money moving people, that if they move less people, that works out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and you know, take it in any order you you want. I mean, we can, we can talk about sort of the future of Uber um, because their things seem to be moving in the right direction for them economically, both here in the U.S. and around the world. But it, um, I'm also curious uh, of your thoughts around the strategy they're pursuing versus the strategy that Lyft is pursuing. But in terms of Uber itself, where do you see this business right now? Well, they're still a massive, I mean, I'm making a little bit of a joke, right? Like if you, if you lose money moving each person, then if you move less people, that ought to be better, but it actually shows through on the bottom line. I mean, Uber does two really main things. They move people and they move food and the food business is in some ways Absolutely. And you could look at companies like DoorDash and you see the same exact factors have come to, you know, have have come to bear. So it doesn't really surprise me that Uber itself, that the stock has done that well. But I mean, their net loss was six point seven billion for 2020, which is down from from 2019. And the thing that I wonder about there are two. There are two elements for all of these companies. One is ubiquity, and then two is you know, is is any type of customer loyalty. I don't happen to think that there is customer loyalty for food delivery. I, I mean, I, I I have not come to believe it yet. Maybe with some of the rewards programs that are coming in, but again, those are a cost. So their business plan has always been basically starve out competition until you could price the way that you want to price. And I think that that's still coming. It's not yet proven, but again, 2020 and moving into 2021, the measurement period that we're talking about was really, really, truly unique. I mean, I hope, I hope 2020 was, please tell me 2020 was unique. I I really, I really hope it it was. (laughs) Um, So, so what do you make of, you know, we, we essentially have, for all intents and purposes, a duopoly when it comes to ride sharing in the United States. We in have US, Uber yeah. and we have Lyft. And Lyft has made it very clear they are not interested in food delivery. They are not interested in alcohol delivery, uh, you know, as Uber just made the acquisition of Drizzly. Yeah. Um, it, obviously, investors can buy shares of both, and therefore you can bet on both horses in this race. Am I wrong to think that we're going to have a clear winner? I think I think I think that it is more the case that you shouldn't necessarily think of Uber and Lyft as being direct 
competitors. I mean, the 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 the, the CEO uh, Dana Kosrachai that basically has described Uber's business as being the bring it to me economy, right? And that's not necessarily that's not necessarily what Lyft is trying to do. Lyft is trying to be as efficient as possible in getting people from point A to point B, whereas as Uber is looking to move into various areas. Now, the thing that I think. The, the folks who are at Uber, I think, are very, very smart, and they're looking for gains on scale because you measure, all, you, you, you end up managing all of these different infrastructures on a very similar process. But it's, you know, this is, this is still very much $6 billion in, in losses with a business that shrank 14% in 2020. This is still very much a bet. So... This is one of those companies where if you were to, you know, if we were to jump into the into the time machine and we jump out five years from now and you were to tell me that Uber is a two hundred billion dollar company, or you were to tell me that Uber has been has has gone Yahoo, I really honestly would not be surprised with either outcome. I, you know, I, and and I know I know it's not great uh, it's not great radio to say yeah I don't know, but I really truly with Uber to me it's one of the most confounding companies that trade in the U.S. right now. Quick programming note before our final story. Our guest on the Motley Fool Money Radio Show this weekend, David Gardner. There How'd you, you get him? That's a big ball. <laughs> you know, every once in a while, we, we his, get his people we, got back to you. We come through with a big name guest, and yeah. in the world of investing, hey, look. I, I don't know if the guests are on Bloomberg Radio this weekend. It ain't David Gardner. We got that, David that's Gardner. That's true. I, I, I mean, we. I, I make fun, but it's certainly not because every time David Gardner comes on, he says he, he really he says something incredible. So that that will be a wonderful conversation. Consulting firm uh, by the name of Alex Partners uh, says the automotive industry stands to lose sixty billion dollars in revenue this year due to a global shortage of semiconductor chips. Walk me through this. Where? There are a few things I want to get to in this yeah. story, but uh, it's a big number. It is a big number. And I know that uh, we've seen uh, the COVID pandemic disrupt all manner of supply chains. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it shouldn't be a surprise, I guess, that semiconductor chips is one of those supply chains. Uh, let me start here. Is this contained to just the automotive industry? No, it's actually across the board. I mean, in, in in some ways, and anybody who's a technologist is going to is is going to start shaking their fists as soon as I say this. But in some ways, the process of making a semiconductor chip is a little bit fungible, right? So, what happened in 2020 is that demand for personal computer products just went through the roof as people made the shift to studying at home, working at home. And that shift was not, was, was not particularly predictable. And it definitely did not match with the cycle that it requires to increase demand amongst uh, chip manufacturers. And the other, you know, the, the, the other issue is that because the models, and this is an area where the US economy and the global economy just to some degree uh, is, is a little more fragile than we might have thought. It doesn't have the same level of resiliency as we might've thought is that so much of chip production has been outsourced over the last decade 
that it was really hard for the for for the chip companies who are in some ways customers to their suppliers to say, okay, I need you to bring it up fifty percent because everybody was hitting them the the actual producers at the exact same time. So when you look at this, I mean, I remember a conversation we had over a decade ago. Um, as, as our conversations tend to be, it was over coffee. But, uh, <laughs> but one of the things you said to me was that um, when you read the news, um, unless you're, you're reading specifically for, you know, with intent, you know, you're, you're looking for, you know, how North Carolina did in the game last night or something. If you're just sort of like browsing news, you tend to read the news with your investor glasses on. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I'm reading this story about housing. Who do I think stands to benefit? Who do I think stands to be hurt by this? When you look at this story and the headline of global shortage of semiconductor chips, um, this is what this consulting firm thinks is the impact just for the automotive industry. Yeah. Are are there either industries or companies that you look at and you think, oh, I, I think I can hazard a guess at who stands to benefit from this? Or is there no benefit? I don't know that there is. I mean, obviously, it is very, very beneficial for. I mean, if, if if you were to talk about problems for companies, having a supply issue versus a demand issue, you would take a supply issue every time. I mean, the 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 deficit in semiconductors right now, it's even impacting companies that you would not expect, like Qualcomm or AMD, and you think, oh, well, they actually they actually make semiconductors. I was no, going to say, actually, right, right, no, they. They assemble them. They don't necessarily make all that they use. So I think ultimately you've got to look at the big producers like Taiwan Semiconductor and say that the fact that we have had this shift means that there's going to be a benefit and it's going to accrue largely to them. But because you're talking about really, you know, the the, the part of this market that is in some ways only driven by just simple demand. The issue, you know, the, the, who's going to benefit from this is not as clear as I would, I would hope it would be. What are you you're talking th- about the commodity component of the market is what I'm trying to say. What do you think is the next uh, shoe to drop here? What is, what is the next, whether it's um, uh, from an industry, whether it's from, um, an industry leader, a CEO coming out and, and commenting on this. What, is, what should folks be looking for in terms of, of where this story goes from here? Think about where this is coming from. This is coming from the automotive industry. And this may be another way in which, in which Tesla has completely disrupted its competitors. I can almost guarantee you that if an $800 billion company or a multi-trillion dollar, you know, a, a trillion dollar plus company like Apple gets in touch with the, you know, with, with, with the uh, manufacturers, they're getting their supply. I think that this is probably something that is impacting the smaller players much more so than it is the larger ones. I mean, you know, in a lot of ways you think about who's not complaining here and it's the big guys. Bill, man, always good talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Chris. I enjoyed it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. 
So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. Show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. Remember, the market is closed on Monday. We'll be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.